Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be one of our invention episodes. We're going to be talking about the invention of the electrical telegraph. And I thought perhaps a good way to kick off this uh, talk would be to discuss a, a classic thought experiment known as the two generals problem. Rob, do you ever encounter this before? Uh, I don't think I'd really seen it spelled out. Uh, so this one was a lot of fun. So this is used in like computer science classes and stuff these days. Normally it has a kind of generic format, though to give it a little extra flair, uh, it, it typically takes place in, in an archaic, low-technology setting. So I'm going to, to give this generic problem a dark crystal twist. Oh, we're going to Thraw. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So you got two Gelfling armies, and uh, they are set to attack the Skeksis stronghold in the Castle of the Crystal. And the two armies are stationed on opposite sides of the valley where the stronghold lies. Uh, I think in world that would be the Ba Lim Valley. But so the, there's a valley where the castle is. The, the two armies are on opposite sides. And the valley is shrouded in an eerie haze. Now, each Gelfling army is commanded by a general. And the two generals know that with their combined strength, if they attack at the same time, they can defeat the Skeksis and overcome the power of the crystal. But if either of them attacks without the other, they're doomed. They won't be strong enough. So they have to coordinate. The only method they have to communicate is to send a messenger through enemy territory to the other side. But here's the problem. How can they ever be sure that they are agreed on a plan? So imagine the first general sends a message. Uh, the message is, we're going to attack tomorrow at dawn. So maybe they, the general writes it down, hands it off to the messenger, and she flies off into the fog with the message. But then the first general has to wonder, is she going to make it through, or will she be shot down and captured by the Gartham? So without confirmation that the messenger succeeded, the first general might really hesitate to go through with the attack because remember, neither army can succeed alone. So the, the first general is just not going to know if the message reached the second general and won't know if they're, they're actually on the same page or not. Yeah, it's not just a trust exercise. It's a trust in your method of long-distance communication. Right. Now, you might think there's a solution to this. You might think, well, the second general could just send back a confirmation message. So uh, so imagine the first messenger does get through. Second general writes the message that says, tomorrow at dawn confirmed. And uh, they hand that off to their own messenger. The second messenger flies off into the fog. But then, unfortunately, the second general would, like the first time, have no way of knowing if their message made it through. And so the second general may begin to wonder if the first general who may or may not have received a confirmation, will actually go ahead with the attack or may hold back for fear of leading that doomed maneuver alone. And then you can just keep permuting this. You can say, okay, well, the first general could send a message confirming that they got the second general's confirmation. But unfortunately, the same uncertainty as before would still apply, and back and forth and back and forth, with the point being that there is actually no way to guarantee agreement on both sides of a communication line when there are doubts about the message reaching its target unhindered or unaltered. And some forms of this problem, I think, have actually been like formally mathematically proven. Hmm. Now, it's funny how on one hand, the two generals problem is used to illustrate issues about the inherent uncertainties of telecommunication in, in computer science and networking technology. But 
I also think about how, in a practical sense, if you like, were to take this out of the thought experiment realm and apply real modern technology to it, modern telecommunications have pretty much made this problem obsolete in the way it's literally envisioned, because while electronic messages can still be intercepted, they can be subject to man-in-the-middle attacks and so forth, something like a traditional voice-to-voice phone call is just pretty solid, right? If Mm -hmm. you get on the phone with the other general... There is simultaneous real-time two-way communication, which would allow for enough you know, conversational fidelity to massively reduce the uncertainty of both generals. If they can talk and it's simultaneous talking, they're probably going to feel confident enough to go ahead, right? Right. I am communicating with the person I need to communicate with. Uh, we can we can hash out the details if it comes up like well which Don which of the various sons of Thra are we referring to? Uh, you know, they can go ahead and you know any kind of potential miscommunications can be ironed out in real time rather quickly without having to to send messages back and forth. Right, and it makes me think about how we generally take like simultaneous, instantaneous telecommunications totally for granted these days. But for the vast majority of human history communication with anybody out of your line of sight was not easy. It took intense time and labor to transmit messages to people who were not in your direct vicinity. This was a major limitation on previous civilizations. It was a major limitation on the scope of projects that could be coordinated. It was a major limitation on uh, just personal relationships over distance. I mean, it, it. the world is so different now that we have basically instantaneous simultaneous telecommunication it's it's a different world than it was before yeah yeah this is this is a fascinating topic and it's actually pretty interesting to think about it within the confines of the dark crystal thrall situation because on one hand i I think it it, i think you're absolutely correct with the gelflings i don't think it is established in the canon that they have any means of long distance communication aside from sending messengers such as their, their their winged females um some of them can communicate with animals, so they could do that. Otherwise, their dream fasting abilities have to be done, <laughs> like, basically within close contact. And then there's also this ability to etch dreams in rocks, but I don't know if that was ever established as being anything that could be done quickly. That seems like more of a communicate with future generations sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Skeksis, uh, during the Gartham Wars at least, they have the crystal bats, which are you know, these these crystal uh, creature um, amalgams that can fly through the air and they're used for spying, but uh, it, they're not expressly used for long-distance communication, but it seems like maybe they could be. And in the Age of Resistance, it is Im- implied that they're able to summon Skekmal the hunter from afar. <laughs> so they, they seem to have some means at their disposal, and that gives uh-huh. them a tremendous advantage over the Gelflings in this scenario. Well, don't they, like, blow a big horn to summon the, the Skeksis voiced by Ralph Ineson? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it a horn that they use? Okay. I well, think well, so. I could be wrong. Well, that's funny because it connects to one of the next things that we're going to talk about, which is what came before. Whenever we talk about mm-hmm. an invention, we like to say, were, were there ways people sort of tried to solve or partially solve this problem before the invention in question with other means? So before we get to the invention of the electric telegraph in the uh, first half of the 19th century, there was a long history of alternative solutions for long-distance communication. So before the 1830s or so, if you needed to get a message to somebody far away as fast as possible, what were your options? Uh, and I guess the first category of things we should talk about is uh, fast movers. One, you know, this option is pretty straightforward. Send a message by the fastest moving person or thing that you can get your hands on that you think will actually get it to the to its uh, point of destination. So these could be fast moving runners or riders. Uh, I was looking at a, a couple of examples of organized systems of fast moving messengers in history. One is cited in the work of the Greek historian Herodotus. Uh, there appear to be different versions of the the paragraph in question from the, the history of Herodotus, but uh, this text I'm about to quote was the one translated into English by Macaulay in 1890. Uh, so this is talking about the context of uh, – uh, the war with Persia, and it mentions the the Persian king Xerxes. 
So Herodotus writes, quote, While Xerxes was doing thus, he sent a messenger to the Persians to announce the calamity which had come upon them. Now there is nothing mortal which accomplishes a journey with more speed than these messengers. So skillfully has this been invented by the Persians. For they say that according to the number of days of which the entire journey consists, so many horses and men are set at intervals, each man and a horse appointed for a day's journey. These neither snow nor rain nor heat nor darkness of night prevents from accomplishing each one the task proposed to him with the very utmost speed. The first then rides and delivers the message with which he is charged to the second, and the second to the third, and after that it goes through them handed from one to the other, as in the torch race among the Hellenes, which they perform for Hephaestus. This kind of running of their horses the Persians call an Angarion. So this is interesting. Uh, this Angarion that Herodotus describes is a is a massive messaging system throughout the Persian Empire, which involves riders that each travel for one day's journey and then like a relay race, hand the message off to a fresh rider who's rested and ready to go the next day. A couple of other things struck me about this quote. One is that uh, it has that line, which I think it was later adapted into the motto of the U.S. Postal Service, the, you know, neither rain nor heat nor darkness of night prevents us from accomplishing our rounds. Which I think speaks to the longevity of this particular solution. Yeah. Uh, like this, this is a solution that emerges um, out, out of uh, out of out of human innovation uh, in multiple cultures, and it sticks with us for a very long time because it's just a very sensible, straightforward way to do it without additional technological innovations to enable other possibilities. Right, but I I think there's another part of this that needs to be appreciated, which is that. Uh, Messaging systems like this, which this is not unique to the Persians. I want to talk about another example in a second. They don't just rely on fast movers themselves. They don't just rely on, say, the riders or the runners Mm -hmm. uh, being swift. They also usually rely on infrastructure, having some kind of dedicated road or pathway system, often with like stations or houses along the way in order to facilitate that fast travel. Because, of course, you know, the the, the terrain you're traveling over makes a very big difference to how fast you can go. Of course, having the uh, the path laid out for you and not having to navigate just through open country, that also makes a big difference. So one of the other examples I wanted to mention were the famous uh, the the Chaskis of the Incan Empire in the in the Andes in South America. Uh, these were uh, messengers who carried information by foot. They were runners who would carry quipus with them. The quipus were the uh, the, the talking knots, the knot based uh, notation system. Uh, that would be on these these cords or fibers, and the knots in them would encode some kind of information. And so the runners would carry these kipus with them, uh, trading out with freshly rested runners at waypoints along this road system throughout the Incan Empire. And uh, a, a commonly cited figure is that these runners could uh, could cover distances of about 240 kilometers a day, which is uh, very impressive. But as impressive as these systems are, like the the systems used by the Persians and the Incans, there are still pretty stiff limitations on how fast a message can travel by by runner or rider. I mean, that that's still relatively slow compared to solutions that would come along later. Yeah, because it, it may only be uh, you know five miles as the crow flies, uh, but even with the, the best road that you've been able to cut between point A and point B, that, uh, that distance could, could be doubled. Uh, but speaking as, of the crow uh, that may fly above the, uh, the, the mountains and the roads and the bridges and the rivers and so forth, there, of course, is the, the other obvious solution to this, and it's the use of animals. It's the use specifically of homing pigeons and uh, the practice of attaching messages to homing pigeons and releasing them. Uh, this dates back to the ancient world. Uh, uh, this, uh, this has been um, uh, traced back to, uh, depending on where you're looking, uh, what source you're looking at, to ancient Egypt or ancient Persia. Uh, certainly the Romans used uh, homing pigeons. Uh, certainly a subset of fast movers, and it depends on a rare domesticated animal mover that can be trusted to return to a specific location. Now, that's not to say it's 100% guaranteed that a single bird will make it back uh, with the message. But and this is one of the reasons why you would release more than one carrying the same message. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the pigeons thing makes me think of the two generals problem again. Mm-hmm. There you're introducing kind of serious questions about whether your message actually gets through, I think. Yeah, I mean, because if you're sending a runner or you're sending a, a bird, there are just things that can happen. Uh, a hawk uh, might decide that that pigeon looks particularly delicious. Uh, the, you could also have counterintelligence enemy operatives who uh, who are catching or shooting pigeons out of the air, that sort of thing. Or the pigeon might see something it's interested in along the way and get distracted. Right. It's Again, it's not 100% guaranteed. Uh, I believe we did an episode on, uh, yeah, on homing pigeons and also compared them to the use of other homing animals and other fantasy uh, series and sort of talked about, well, why don't we use owls? Why do we use pigeons? Why don't we use uh, crows? Why are, they, why are we using pigeons uh, and so forth? Now, there's another method of uh, long-distance communication that goes much faster uh, and has been achieved in some rather ingenious forms throughout the world, and that's auditory long-distance communication. That's right, yeah. Uh, I mean, this um, in, at heart, this is pretty straightforward, right? You, we use, you can just use sound to communicate something. You just need to make sure that it is a sound that can be heard. Uh, we already alluded to the possibility of summoning Skekmal the Hunter by blowing a horn, and uh, another, of course, fantasy example that comes to mind are the horns of the Night Watch in uh, the Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones. Uh, one blast of the horn means rangers are returning. Two blasts means it's wildings attacking the, the wall or, you know, or in the vicinity out there. And then three horn blasts, that means it's the others or the White Walkers attacking. Now, George R.R. R. Martin, in creating this, he was, of course, playing off of the long history in human cultures of using horns and other loud instruments to communicate. And these are called signal instruments. And there are a great many things that fall under this basic category. And many of them, some of the examples we're going to point out here, they're also uh, far more complicated than this uh, the simple three-horn system uh, would suggest. So signal drums are among the oldest documented form of signal instruments, and they have a long history in Africa especially. And again, these are pretty complicated. According to David Locke and Godwin uh, Agbeli in a 1981 article titled Drum Language in Adzogbo, this is an example of what we can indeed think of as, quote, a surrogate language played on musical instruments. And in addition to the use of drums, we see the use of... um, of, of chordophones, aerophones, m- membranophones, and ideophones used in this manner historically among various African peoples. Quote, these surrogate languages may be signals, that is, special symbolic codes or representations of speech, that is, actual imitations of spoken language. These talking drums worked generally by uh, imitating the rhythm of words in a given language. So like the rise and fall of specific words, and they could be used to send messages up to 20 miles or 32 kilometers. And then, of course, the message could then be relayed by other drummers to spread news uh, or other communications. And yeah, these were used, according to Locke and uh, Agbeli, for all sorts of things. You could have... um, uh, uh, you know, messages, messages, announcements, invocations, prayers, proverbs, eulogies, emergency alarms, etc. And of course, we continue to see, uh, you know, echoes of these very basic uses, like anytime there is a loud announcement that needs to be heard by people, uh, you know, and sometimes that announcement is made via a sound, uh, you know, we're kind of dipping into this same area. Now, there are uh, additional examples we might turn to if we were to do an exhaustive uh, look at the different forms of auditory long-distance communication. You have, especially in military uh, situations, you have things like fife and drum corps. Uh, You have Aztec conch signalers. You have alpine horns, bugle players, church bells even. We don't really think of that, but a church bell is a way of communicating uh, something to the surrounding area. Bagpipes, of course, are a big one in in different cultures. Uh, So yeah, there's a whole list of anything you have time you have something that can create a very loud noise, and especially if it can be modulated uh, in some form or another, well, that can be used to communicate. All right. Well, that's long distance uh, communication by sound. But another thing that we should explore is what is uh, sometimes called optical telegraphy. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, of course, associate the telegraph with the technology we're going to be talking about in a bit, the electrical telegraph. 
But telegraph technically just means distance writing, basically, you know, writing, writing far away. Uh, so communication at a distance. And uh, it was used to refer to these optical techniques before it was ever used to refer to electrical techniques. And the optical techniques could involve all kinds of things, uh, fire and smoke signals, thing, what's known as semaphore, towers with shutters and flags, basically, oh, uh, mirrors that reflect the sunlight, mm -hmm. basically anything you can use to create a visual signal that somebody at a distance could see and then maybe relay along to the next station uh, so that you can go beyond a single a single uh, station's line of sight, that also works to transmit messages at a distance. Yeah, and of course, if you need, if you, say you're if you're at sea or something, uh, dealing with uh, you know with with, with uniform um, uh, heights and all, and then it's just like one person on one ship, and it's just as far as the next ship is visible. But in other cases, you might need to make use of towers or higher points of elevation. Um, but uh, yeah, in all of this, uh, you see everything from yeah mirrors to, to a lot of flares and and. Uh, torches and lights but also yeah this use of semaphore um this was used for ship 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 to ship communication often you know you accomplished with flags but it could also be carried out by a giant puppet <laughs> sort of um Claude Chappé in France in 1794 developed a system by which giant pivoted arms on a tower could convey the signal to other towers uh, 5 to 10 miles or 8 to 16 kilometers apart. And then these messages could be then read by telescopic sightings. Okay, this makes me think like the aliens are landing, it's 1800 or so, and they just see this long string along the countryside of these like dancing giant scarecrows with their arms waving all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looked kind of like, um, I guess it kind of looks like a an American football goal, but of course it can move and it's to create these various uh, shapes that represent different letters. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty crazy to, to think about like this, this was one way of carrying out this form of long distance communication, which makes me think in a fantasy setting, I don't know that anyone's done this, but say like, like take a Game of Thrones style world or any of these other ones, you often have giants about the giants are generally tasked with things like breaking down walls and heaving stones, but it seems like kind of a waste of their ability. Get them to stand on the nearest hill and do a bunch of arm motions and send signals to another giant on another hill. Well, this does highlight something that, I mean, as far as the actual speed of travel from station to station goes with optical semaphore, I mean, you can't really beat the speed of light. That That's great. But you are limited by line of sight. So you mm -hmm. would be required to have stations close enough together and enough of them that they could keep like seeing the message the last station transmitted and then transmit that along the chain to its intended destination. And so th that does require a lot of infrastructure and like human operators for these big weird puppets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course with, with semaphore also, yeah, you have to, you have to know the, the language of it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Now, there's a, there are a couple of other systems I want to discuss here, and you could categorize them both as being 
hydraulic telegraphs. Though to be clear, even though they both are water-based and involved water, one of them is essentially an optical system. The other is more overtly hydraulic in nature. Hmm. So it's two different systems. There's one that's a 4th century BCE Greek system, and the later is a 19th century British invention that uh, the the Greek system in, in question here. It was actually used. The British invention never really progress past the test phase uh, for obvious reasons, as we'll get into. Uh, But the Greek technology of the hydraulic telegraph was used during the First Punic War, and it's described by both Tacticus and Polybius. It was essentially a system of water-aided semaphore. So uh, torches were used to sync up two sides. So again, imagine two sides on two different hills. They can see the flames that each side has. So they can communicate with torch. But in addition to each side having a torch, each side also has a water vessel with a, with a lined vertical rod inserted inside it, uh, you know, like you might use to, to measure the depth, measure, measure how much water is in that vessel. Once they, the two sides have synced up with, their, with reveals of their torches, then they both start draining their vessels. And we have to stress, these vessels are not connected in any way. Okay, uh, so then they both stop when the sender signals stop with the torch. So it's again, it's like, all right, here, flash of the torch, start draining your vessel. Okay, now stop. Let's both stop at the same time. And they both stop. Uh, so the different measured water levels inside the vessel that both sides have have different messages at the different depth levels, such as cavalry arrived in the country or heavy infantry or ships or corn, simple messages like that. And if it's ancient Greece, that would have to be corn in the tr- older meaning of like grain in general, not meaning maize. Right, right. Now, the British system uh, in question here was designed by civil engineer Francis Wishaw, who later worked in electric telegraphs, and it was devised to, you know, similarly to, to send a coded message that could be read, but, and based on water pressure in a chamber, though in this case, the receiving chamber would be connected to the sending chamber. So there's literally a, like a hose of some sort or a pipe connecting these two different uh, stations, and of course, multiple stations as well. Um, so it wouldn't have labeled specific messages within the chamber, but rather there was a language of changes in water pressure, more in keeping with what we'll, act- we'll discuss in reference to, say, like Morse code. Um, mm. So it, it would not be like, okay, go to level five, and that means that we need ships. No, it would be like, uh, you know, increase, increase, decrease, or something to that effect. There would be a, a language of changing levels in the water. Um, of course, there are obvious limitations that come to mind with this. You're dealing, you're dealing with, with, with water and the pressure of water. You're, if you had this system set up in a place where the temperatures dropped enough, you'd have to deal with poten- potential freezes and so forth. So mm. it was apparently never developed outside of tests. Okay, interesting idea, though. Yeah, and, and of course, obviously, it becomes unnecessary given the advances of the electric telegraph. Exactly. So the real revolution comes with the discovery of electricity, in particular, uh, a, a few a few different breakthroughs. One is the work of Alessandro Volta on the storage and control of electrical current with the use of the voltaic pile, which is uh, pretty much the same principle as what we would today call a battery, uh, which Volta created around the year 1800. And another input on the development of electrical telegraphy was the research on the relationship between electricity and magnetism, especially that of Hans Christian Orsted of Denmark in 1820, where he found, for example, that you could attract one of the poles of a magnetic compass by running current through a nearby wire. Now, building on this knowledge, the idea of transmitting messages across electrical wires created an exciting technological frontier in around the 1830s. Now, the electrical telegraph is not one of those inventions that was a unique stroke of genius by a single inventor working alone from out of nowhere. Rather, it's it's exactly the opposite. It's one of those cases where lots of people all around the same time 
became interested in basically the same idea. In this case, they became aware that you could use electromagnetism to send encoded messages over wire across a great distance and at great speed. Receipt would be practically instantaneous. You can't ask for much better than that. So electrical telegraphy was not an unexpected breakthrough that came from from a single point, but rather a kind of... uh, race between many different inventors and teams to design the ideal system to implement this new potential. And there were so many different ideas, we certainly can't mention them all. Instead, we're going to focus on a couple of the major early models that were the most influential. So one team was based in England, and that was Sir William Cook and Sir Charles Wheatstone. And then another team was based in the United States. That was Samuel Morse, Leonard Gale, and Alfred Vail. And a, and a kind of interesting thing to, to keep in mind here is that really I think the most important differences in these systems were actually not so much in the core transmission technology, but in the systems for encoding and decoding the messages. Because remember, this is not a phone call. There's no complex audio signal traveling through the wires of a telegraph. Instead, what was clear in the 1830s was that you could send current through a wire. You could send uh, current or pulses of electricity and by extension magnetism. And so the question was, what is the best way to encode and decode information using that electrical current across wire. So first, I'm going to talk about the uh, the English team, the Cook and Wheatstone Telegraph. Uh, this was also known sometimes as the five-needle telegraph, though there were actually many models with different numbers of needles. Uh, but it was a way to transmit written messages across wires with the use of a coding diamond and an array of five different magnetic pointer needles. Unfortunately, I think this is one that's just really hard to explain without a visual aid. So if you can look up a picture of the Cook Wheatstone Telegraph, uh, I recommend it. But if not, I will do my best to explain it. So imagine a sort of large diamond shape made out of many smaller diamonds. And those smaller diamonds are connecting letters of the alphabet. So on the upper half of the diamond, picture like a pyramid with the letter A at the top and then two lines forking down from the A, and those forks go to the letters B and D. And each of those letters has two lines below it, forking down to two more letters. So the B forks to an E and an F, the D forks to the F and the G, and so on. And then this forking alphabet pyramid is, again, represented upside down with different letters below the the middle line of this diamond. So the big diamond is full of the letters of the alphabet. Not all the letters of the alphabet, as we'll get to in a minute, Mm -hmm. but most of them. And then in the middle of this uh, big vertical diamond, it is bisected by uh, a line, which is a rack mounted with five magnetic needles. Now, the five needles could be operated by switches at the transmitting station, which would send current through the wire associated with each needle and would attract or repel it, causing it to move, pointing either to the left or the right. By triggering two different pointer needles at the same time, you could essentially point to any letter on the diamond. So one needle would turn and you'd look up the line where it's pointing, another needle would turn, you'd look up the line where it's pointing, and you'd see where those two lines intersected, and that would be the letter that's encoded in the message. Now, I've been describing the five-needle model. There were actually other variations on, on the Cook and Wheatstone design, which required, uh, which had different numbers of needles, sometimes fewer needles, which was cheaper to do because you didn't have to use as many wires, but which required more training for the operators to encode and decode messages rather than using the whole alphabet diamond. Um, so after its invention in the 1830s, the Cook and Wheatstone Telegraph was put into use in several variations by railway companies in Britain, since rail stations were the places where instantaneous distance communication was actually useful. That was needed there. And they had the money to invest in the infrastructure necessary to operate the machines, though I think actually um, – Cook and Wheatstone may have uh, paid out of pocket to implement some of the original designs because it was initially considered experimental. Hmm. 
early implementations of the telegraph would widely be associated with rail and, and railway stations. Uh, and, and in fact, that actually plays into one of the most famous stories about how the telegraph was used early on. So the Cook and Wheatstone telegraph was famously used in the apprehension of a murderer named John Towell in 1844. Have you ever heard of this, Rob? No, no. So the story goes like this. Towell was a British shopkeeper and chemist who had, uh, at multiple points, he had been uh, a member of the Quakers. And he had been carrying on an extramarital affair with a woman named Sarah Hart. And I think it was on New Year's Day, 1845, he apparently murdered her by poisoning her beer with hydrogen cyanide. And witnesses saw him leaving her house, and then she was found dead in her house, he was tracked to the railway station in the city where he was, which was Slough in uh, southern England. Towell tried to flee the area by boarding a steam engine in Slough that was bound for Paddington Station in Westminster. But the authorities used the telegraph to send ahead a description to Paddington. And there he was apprehended successfully. He was put on trial and he was convicted. Uh, and as a side note, I think he his lawyer tried to argue that um, that uh, the woman had been poisoned by eating uh, by eating the seeds of an apple. Hmm. But an interesting quirk of the telegraph technology was that again, it didn't code for every letter of the alphabet, just most of them. So the machine did not have letters such as Q or J or X or U or C or Z, presumably because you could replace all of these letters phonetically with combinations of other letters, as they actually did in the message they sent, because the main fact used to identify um, John Towell at the location was that he was wearing uh, uh, quote, Quaker garb. So he was wearing the, the clothing commonly associated with the Quakers, but they didn't have a Q on the machine. So they had to spell it K-W-A-K-E-R, which apparently <laughs> led to great confusion, but they eventually figured it out. Uh, also, the very opening of the message, because there was no J in the machine, says, a murder has gust been committed. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so looking at the Cook and Wheatstone model, uh, with when you're when you're actually talking about the five needle model, the one that's got the most complete uh, alphabetic diamond with all those needles, uh, a great upside here is that you didn't really need any special training to decode messages other than basic literacy, because they would be spelled out in plain language with a few simple phonetic substitutions. A downside to the five needle model was that in order to operate all these needles, the machines had to be connected by cable arrays consisting of like five or six different wires strung out along poles, and that was expensive. Yeah, not just one wire, but multiple wires. And then also, let's face it, criminals could have eventually figured this out. They're like, okay, if I'm going to commit a crime... I just need to make sure there are a lot of J's and Q's and C's in what I'm doing. So I need to dress as a juggler uh, <laughs> while wearing a, a queen's tiara. Um, and so Be on forth. the lookout for guggler? What? <laughs> Can you imagine the confusion in sending messages about jazz? Oh, goodness. No J or Z. Well, that'd be G-A-S-S. -S. You can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work. You got you to gotta have those Z's. Okay, but that was one of the big English models. The model that really won out in the in the early telegraph wars was the one that, that grew out of the work of Morse, Gale, and Vale in America. That's right. Yeah, that leads us to American artist and inventor Samuel F.B. Morse. Um, is an interesting guy, a Calvinist painter who was also interested in electricity, a little bit interested in politics, and then ultimately falls into in, to uh, helping to invent this uh, this 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 impressive technology, and, of course, Morse code. So uh, as a child, he was apparently eccentric and at times uh, disinterested as a student, uh, but he was interested in painting miniature portraits, which um, uh, one biographer I was looking at said that it apparently distressed his parents, you know, that this was... <laughs> This is his interest because his father was a distinguished geographer and a congregationalist clergyman. Uh, but here is little Morse, and he just wants to paint little pictures for the most part. Can you imagine the horror that your son wants to paint? 
<laughs> but uh, Morris ends up graduating from Yale. While he's there, he attends some lectures on electricity, so he does become interested in, uh, in some of this new technology. Uh, after graduating, he travels to England to study under uh, the American painter Washington Alston. And when he comes back, he turns to painting portraits to make a living. He wasn't well off, but he moved in intellectual circles and eventually taught at what would become NYU. And then it happens. He's returning from another trip to Europe in 1832, and he overhears a conversation about this exciting new electromagnet technology, and he gets it in his head like other people have gotten it in their head. This is how we can we can send a long-distance communication. Uh, he seems to have, like many of these uh, individuals, probably thought that he came up with the idea and, uh, you know, and was perhaps the first, but of course it had already been proposed in 1753, had been tested in 1774, but he persisted and made his own model by 1835 and was all in on the invention by 1837. Uh, sometimes it is... It's argued that uh, you know that he's a, that he was like a quote unquote failed painter who then became this, and then if he had been successful as a painter, maybe he would not have turned to this uh, innovation. I don't know. Those are often strange conversations to get into. A lot of like what ifs in the <laughs> uh, the arching narrative of a, a single individual. Okay, but his collaborators were uh, were Leonard Gale and Alfred Vail. Yes, yeah, he ends up teaming up with a chemist uh, Leonard Gale and a machinist Alfred Vail. I don't know if he insisted on their names rhyming like that, but that's how it came together. <laughs> they both became partners in his telegraph venture. Morse and Vale developed a code to use the telegraph consisting of a system of dots and dashes. Uh, I've also seen it credited as being a situation where Morse invented it, but then Vale helped improve upon it. Uh, and there were other points at which it needed to be improved upon. So, for instance, it was developed in America um, – but then it was uh, introduced to Europe, and they realized, okay, well, we've got to make changes with it so that it will uh, work with other languages. So the International Morse Code, or Continental Morse Code, was devised in 1851 by a conference of European nations. Yeah, and I think the original uh, idea of Morse Code was that, and it, in many ways, you can see why it would be an improvement over, say, this, like, uh, you know, five wires for the letter diamond thing, because Morse Code, you're just opening and closing the circuit, right? It's just mm -hmm. uh, like there, there's a simple action and then all you need is a code for the timing of your, your dots and dashes for like closing the circuit for a quick thing or a little bit longer. That's your dot and your dash. And then with the combination of dots and dashes, you can code out the entire alphabet. I believe the original idea with Morse code was that it was supposed to first um, be something that would be transcribed as dots and dashes on paper and then decoded on paper by somebody who was trained in the code. But eventually they figured out that, oh, okay, operators who have some experience with this just learn the code and then they can go straight from hearing it to knowing exactly what the actual plain text message is. So at that point, they modified the technical design to make it like louder to make it into sort of a very clear audible beeps and bips instead of just the clicking of the, uh, the writing implement. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of you have heard audio of this before, you know, where the, the code takes on the form of something like, say, dit, 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 da, sort of a thing. Uh, yeah. Or you've, perhaps you've seen a movie where someone uses Morse code to communicate whilst, you know, trapped in a casket or a tomb or something, you know. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been utilized a number of times in motion pictures. Interesting thing about the message SOS, that is something that comes from Morse code, and it actually doesn't stand for anything. SOS is not an acronym. It's just a code that was chosen because it's easy to code and easy to distinguish when you hear it, because mm -hmm. one letter is just three dots and one letter is three dashes. <laughs> Now, apparently in creating this, Morse was trying to cash in on like a bounty that had been established by the U.S. Congress of something like $30,000 for someone who could create a, a, uh, a real-time telegraphy system that would essentially connect a bunch of different – I don't remember exactly what the extent of it was supposed to be. But they had some specifications, and, and Morse was trying to claim that money, saying mm -hmm. like, I, well, I've done it. I've got what you're looking for. 
And all this does lead up to Morse doing a demonstration of the new technology for the U.S. Congress. Uh, so w- whenever there's a new technology for transmitting or recording messages, you always want to know what was the first message. And, right. you know, there's a little bit of sleight of hand in these stories because you can imagine, well, there were probably always like little weird test messages before the, whatever the canonical supposed first message was. But we still know about some famous examples. So you got the first telephone call in 1876, where uh, supposedly what it was was Alexander Graham Bell calling his associate Thomas Watson and saying, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. And then, of course, there's always the question of the first audio recording made. Uh, That's a little bit more complicated. It depends on if you count recordings made by somebody named uh, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville in France in the 18. 50s, or I think maybe in the year 1860, this consisted of a recording of Claire de Lune. Uh, but the more commonly cited example is Thomas Edison recording into his talking machine around 1877. And I think he claimed that the first message recorded was him reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb. Uh, but some <laughs> evidence indicates maybe the real answer was that he was reciting the alphabet or just saying messages like, can you hear this? Yeah, um, I'll come back to this in a, in a, in a bit here, but uh, technology historian James Burke mentions this um, in Connections, and he describes it not as a singing, but as a shouting of, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. So <laughs> if it was more shouting than singing, then maybe you can get a little um, pedantic about whether this constitutes the first uh, recording of a song. Okay, but at least, you know, if you buy the mythology, the canonical examples, Mr. Watson, come here, I want you, Mary had a little lamb, what are we going to get for the telegraph? Well, apparently the first public message sent by telegraph is, is the demonstration for the U.S. Congress by Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail. It was sent between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, and the message was... What hath God wrought? <laughs> Something about this is hilarious to me. It's a quotation from the Bible, and I am sure Morse did not mean it this way, but it suggests a sort of Oppenheimer-esque horror and regret about the birth of this new technology. I'm sure that is not what it was supposed to sound like, but uh, I don't know. I think something is lost across uh, culture and history there. Yeah, I don't there's I don't understand why this particular quote screams to be the first uh, transmitted message. Yeah. Like why not something a little more upbeat or just a little more clear? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> But Okay, but anyway, we we get all these uh, telegraph innovations, electrical telegraph innovations in the 1830s and 1840s, and in the decades to follow, it becomes an essential part of uh, technological civilization. You know, it's like it's used for all kinds of things. Uh, I've read multiple references to it being used to make rail travel safer, Mm. uh, presumably, I think, to coordinate travel along rail lines to reduce the the risk of, say, collisions or something. Okay, so not just to, to help prevent murderous Quakers. From traveling right. on them. Okay. Yes. You know, it, it, coming back to the two generals problem, it also certainly had an impact on military operations as it could be used in real time to solve this very problem. Uh, it's been discussed by historians that the telegraph was a technology that helped Abraham Lincoln uh, in the defeat of the Confederates. Uh, the Confederates, mm-hmm. uh, the Confederate uh, states uh, during the Civil War, they had telegraph technology as well but they didn't use them as much or as well as the Union Army. Um, Now, you might not think about this, but uh, what this amounted to is not just taking advantage of pre-existing telegraph lines, but you had to have someone to build telegraph lines during battles, uh, including like maintaining them during an actual shooting battle. And that's exactly what the Union Army's Telegraph Construction Corps did. Uh, wow. and had to do. So it's, it's pretty, pretty impressive to, uh, to think about. Interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, outside of, of warfare, though sometimes this also factors into warfare, obviously, telegraph technology had a big impact on journalism. Uh, it's just, it comes down to just how quickly you can convey information. And it's why so many newspapers to this day have telegraph in their names. Oh, uh, yeah. well, uh, how about wire service? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it, it all comes down to the same thing. because, And of course, this is playing on the fact, too, that you also have these other papers that have the older terms of like post and mail in their titles. But journalism at the time, there were many of these outlets that were just ready to fully embrace this new technology, uh, high-speed communication. High-speed communication means better news, and we're going to put that slap dab in the title of the paper itself. 
though it's funny thinking about if like the, the similar principle applied to later ways, like the technology that was used to acquire the information that is published in the article. Like if later newspapers were called like the daily telephone or something. Yeah. The, uh, the weekly outsourcing of reporting duties yeah. uh, or so forth. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the, the, your morning facts. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, you can, you can, there may be, there may be some example that I'm, I'm missing the, uh, uh, where we can, uh, envision this, but, uh, I, I mentioned that I was going to come back to, uh, uh, Mary had a little lamb and, uh, I want to come back to something that technology historian James Burke brings up in connections. And that is that there is a direct line to be drawn from the repeating telegraph to the invention of the Edison phonograph. So, an 1877 innovation allowed the coded messages from a telegraph to be encoded by a stylus on a waxed paper disc. The stylus moved up and down, making indentations in the disc as it revolved on what was essentially a turntable. Uh, to replay the message, you flip the paper disc over, which turned these in, in, indentions into bumps, uh, and a reader stylus traveled over these bumps. Okay, so Thomas Edison is said, and again, we have to consider the possible, you know, myth-making uh, uh, mild or, or overt in any invention story. But Thomas Edison is said to have been listening to such a machine work at high speed and realized that there was a connection between the vibration of the stylus and a sound pattern. Burke writes, quote, he hit upon the idea, not a new one, that he could reproduce sounds as vibrations by the use of a thin membrane. So he placed a needle on the membrane that would bump up and down as the membrane vibrated and mounted it in such a way to score a bumpy path in tinfoil. So he tinkered with this setup and then famously was able to, and again, Burke describes it as a shouting of Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow at the membrane, then return it to the original position, place the needle in the groove and turn the cylinder at the same speed to reproduce his own voice through the vibrating membrane. And so the phonograph and the age of recorded sound was essentially born out of this shift. Wow. And these are just a few of the examples, because ultimately when we were talking about the, the, the advent of the telegraph, uh, I mean, it really was a game changer. Like we are entering the age of, of, of telecommunication at this point. You know, we're entering yeah. the, the age of rapid communication. And this, is, this, is the, this technology is the forerunner of so many of the technologies that define life in the modern age. Totally. I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about on this subject, though I think for time we got to wrap it up. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and call it there. But yes, we may come back in the future. If there's a particular aspect of this episode you'd like uh, to be uh, further explored, let us know. Uh, let us know also your thoughts on the invention of the telegraph, technologies that came before, uh, technologies and traditions as well. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. As always, we remind you we remind you that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast that publishes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Um, and and we also have a Monday episode, which is usually a listener mail. On Wednesdays, we usually publish a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.